Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. An eye-popping story from Hamilton's Fraud and Waste Hotline. Plus, Grey Cup Week wasn't perfect. How the fiscal update impacts you. Ontario's tuition rate remains frozen. Food delivery issues. And the holiday train is back. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. To City Hall we go, where complaints coming into the Hamilton Fraud and Waste Hotline are on the rise. And we have learned about a shocking case involving a now former city employee. To help us along on this front, Charles Brown is the auditor with the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Brown, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. I understand um, that there's been a rise in complaints made to the hotline. What kind of increase have you noticed? Yeah, it's been a very, very busy year. Now we're talking the year, the year that ended in, uh, in, in June, the 2023. That's our year for reporting these activities, and it rose almost 50% to 159 complaints. About half and half, half coming from employees, half of the complaints coming from members of the public. So that was a significant rise in, in compared to the last year. And of course, last year went up even more from the previous two years. So we've gone from, I think the first year we had 80, 80, 85, something like that. So we've almost doubled in, uh, in four years. This is the fourth year. Is this concerning or is this just a case of more people figuring out, hey, there's a hotline and I have a complaint and I'll, I'll use my right to, to make my voice heard? I think it's the latter, primarily. Uh, that's the indication that I get. Um, because the complaints are, are, are um, you know, the substanti- what we call the substantiation rate on these complaints has, has held at about 31%, 32%. So we're not seeing any more spurious complaints. If, if anything, they have the same uh, accuracy as they've always had. Are more investigations being launched into alleged wrongdoing? Uh, the, the actual number for investigation, because we have a different routes we can take, you know, we can investigate it ourselves or we can assign the investigation to a different party with uh, a requirement that they report back what they did, how they looked into it, et cetera, and we review that information. Um, but in, in, in terms of investigations this year, it was 13, which is down. But having said that, for example, when we investigated the uh, false claims, benefits claims, uh, six individuals. Well, that to us as a statistic was one investigation, even though perhaps in other years it might have been called six investigations. So I think the number of investigations is pretty steady for us year to year on the whole. The uh, the most, uh, I guess, eye-opening or eye-popping case was this now former employee who was found living in a vacant city-owned housing unit uh, at the city's expense. How did this uh, get uncovered? So this was uncovered by uh, by management. Uh, they saw some things that were uh, red flags, I guess, and started making discrete inquiries on what's going on with the unit. And eventually, uh, a team of management went into the unit uh, first thing in the morning and and uh, found the individual there and confronted them about what was going on. And then, then at that point, we got involved in... Uh, in uh, you know how this happened and and so forth and when did this uh, i guess pseudo raid kind of take place uh so we we this was this year uh february of this year yeah and can you tell us where it happened 
Uh, I can't get into specifics. I, I don't want to give any information. We have to protect the identity of individuals. It's a personnel matter. That's the city's um, policy. So we're uh, we, we don't we don't discuss the particulars that would you know lend the ability to identify an individual, but um, it, it was within the, one of the city housing uh, vacant units. And was this an individual who had a long tenure at the city? Uh, that's a good question. I think so. I think so. I'm just going by memory. And uh, do we know how long this? Okay. Put it that way. Say that again. Sorry. Not, not a, it wasn't a new employee or anything like that, if okay. that's what you're getting at. And do we know how long this individual was in this unit? Uh, that was part of our investigation, trying to make that determination um, through various means. So we figured it was anywhere from a minimum of four months to, you know, up to a year and a half. Have these uh, fraud and waste cases uh, led to any changes in the vetting process of, let's say, outside vendors or even the hiring process? Oh, yeah. We, we typically make recommendations with respect to um, what could be improved. I mean, that's, that's, that's where I think you're getting a lot of the value of doing an investigation by an independent group such as ours. Uh, for example, we made 15 recommendations just with respect to this case um, that we were discuss discussing alone. So this obviously could have been avoided if the right parameters were initially in place. Exactly, exactly. So there's another one in, in the hotline report, for example, the phishing, where someone uh, impersonated a vendor and got the, the amounts owed to that vendor sent to a different bank account. You know, obviously that's not supposed to happen. We should have proper controls in place and execute them properly to ensure that that doesn't happen. So we made recommendations in that one as well. Great information from Auditor Charles Brown here on GMH. Mr. Brown, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. That is Charles Brown, the auditor with the City of Hamilton, with some very interesting uh, scenarios that they have to deal with in terms of the fraud and waste hotline. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Grey Cup week in Hamilton, I think by all accounts, was an overwhelming success, right? Sunday's championship game between Montreal and Winnipeg was absolutely outstanding. An instant classic, a down-to-the-wire, last-minute game-winning score by Montreal. It was a great game. The festival was amazing. Lots to do, lots of different things to do than just going downtown and you know, getting plastered, right? There were, there were free-to-attend concerts. There were uh, some cool events on James North, uh, many for kids to take part. It was a family-friendly event. The Carrie Underwood concert, and the, and the list goes on and on and on. The halftime shows, it was all great. But, and you knew there was a but coming, it wasn't perfect. There were... A few issues that were apparently overlooked by organizers, some of which fall under the heading of accessibility. In some cases, it was inaccessible for some members of our community to enjoy what we all enjoyed last week. Anthony Frazina is the founder of Above and Beyond and volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Anthony, good morning. Welcome back. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I am good. Uh, first off, let's let's get to the game. I know that you you gave your tickets away. You donated your tickets 
to Big Brothers, uh, Big Sisters of Hamilton, and a couple of uh, people got to enjoy the game that they not normally would. So, uh, you know, thanks for doing that, number one, just as one member of the community to another. That was awesome to see. Uh, watching the game, what did you think on Sunday? Oh, it was a phenomenal game back and forth. Uh, Montreal really showed a lot of spirit and really uh, a drive to win the game. And, you know, kudos to Montreal. I, I Throughout the week, I got to meet a lot of fans through uh, of, of the CFL and a lot of great Montreal fans, people making the the drive or the, the jaunt over to Hamilton for the game. But uh, donating the tickets, that uh, my season tickets and the tickets that I had for the Great Cup, was really just it just felt like the right thing to do for me and it was a great gesture and i know that the two individuals who went um had a had a phenomenal time which is great it's too bad the tie cats weren't in the game though <laughs> absolutely I know yeah, no, it would have been nice if tie cats were in there absolutely yes sure. so it, uh, again it was i think an overwhelming success in terms of the gray cup game and the week itself but from an accessibility standpoint you have some issues with what happened or what wasn't done so what did you notice uh, well, um, the accessibility is always, uh, we're always trying to move the needle forward and thinking proactively when it comes to accessibility. Uh, I attended a few events uh, throughout the course of the week, uh, predominantly the CFL uh, Alumni Association's uh, luncheon, and it was a it was a great event. You know, got to reconnect from Ticats of yesteryear, meet uh, individuals like Jason Riley, uh, connect with Grover Covington, actually came to my birthday party as a as an eight-year-old um but there were a few challenges when uh you know purchasing my ticket for the event you know there was no correspondence related to do you require any accessibility needs um and you know i attended the event the event was at leading station as you know and uh, there is a a ramp and there are people more than willing to assist me and support me, and, and that's great. But it's not always necessary, although appreciated, uh, if we can think of accessibility at the forefront of the conversation. And not only that, uh, the seating for where I was for my table was not exactly in clear sight of the stage hmm. uh, with, with great friends uh, and great people that I got to meet. But again, uh, sight lines to the stage were impeded. And uh, I'm not sure if this was asked at the table or not, maybe even on the invitation, to, uh, whether or not you had any dietary restrictions. I know that's you know a popular kind of question that is asked either in an invitation or while you're at the event. Um, and, and as you just referenced, you know, no one is asking anyone about their accessibility needs. Uh, that is a big oversight. Absolutely. And it's about just having the... the the question being asked in a broad statement and then having that conversation with that individual on a one-to-one -one basis to ensure that those accessibility needs are met, whether it's venue accessibility, whether it's, you know, washroom accessibility, whether it's uh, the event is a being served to you, if there's a meal being served to you, or if it's buffet style, um, you know, access in and out of the venue is that, feasible uh you know does the do they have push button door operators mm -hmm. to get in and out of the venue uh is the venue itself uh, accessible to get in and out of sounds like the cfl or the tie cats uh, or the great cup committee should have hired you as a consultant to because obviously they overlook these things Th there was certainly a lot of things that were overlooked and uh, 
I hope that, you know, you know, as we progress when it comes to accessibility, that, you know, events and festivals like this uh, within Hamilton, they actually seek the lived experience of people with disabilities. You know, we talk about, you know, the AODA, we talk about uh, Hamilton design guidelines, building codes, and so on and so forth. But that denotes really a minimum standard, Rick. That denotes compliance. More often than not, those really are just benchmarks and people are just desiring to meet those uh, goals. But more often than not, those benchmarks and goals don't necessarily meet the needs of people with disabilities. So then I ask the question, what are we really doing when it comes to accessibility? And, and I've said this before, and I've said this to you as well, that the percentage of people with disabilities in Hamilton is greater than the provincial and national averages. So we have the abundance of talent. We have the lived experience at our fingertips to utilize. And, and I feel that often, more often than not, it gets overlooked. It's well said. Uh, we got about a minute. Have you shared your concerns with the CFL or the Ticats to say, hey, listen, I mean, this this should have been taken care of? And, and if so, what was their response? I have reached out and uh, I plan to reach out again um, just to uh, reaffirm my concerns, reaffirm my, uh, I wouldn't say disappointment, but more so just how we can improve upon this, not only from a, a Canadian Football League standpoint, from a Hamilton standpoint. And and I do see that the needle is moving forward and uh, it's always moving at a snail's pace, but uh, we're happy to do it. It certainly was. Uh, again, I think we can all agree that the game and the festival was great, but uh, from an accessibility standpoint, there are you know, improvements needed to be made. And I'm glad that uh, you are highlighting that, Anthony. And hopefully come the 2024 championship in BC and, and all the other great cups that follow, this is going to be top of mind. Appreciate your time this morning. And uh, well, we'll talk to you in the off season. Thanks, Rick. Have a great day. Anthony Frazina is the founder of Above and Beyond, volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition, and making uh, a number of great points that, uh, listen, this is this is an issue for many in this community, as he just you know referenced in terms of the ratio of individuals who have accessibility um, uh, requirements. And uh, listen, when the Grey Cup comes back to Hamilton, I'm sure they'll hit it out of the park. At least that is the hope. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big day on Parliament Hill yesterday. Finance Minister Krista Freeland delivering her fiscal update, her latest economic statement, and uh, most of which is aimed at trying to help Canadians, middle class especially, and that's her words. And um, it comes as, you know, we're seeing mortgage rates skyrocket food prices still sky high a lack of affordable housing or just housing in general so how is everything that was announced going to impact you well let's dive into this with our guest Moshe Lander a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University who joins us now on GMH Moshe thanks for waking up this morning with us how are you good morning so one of the things that is being proposed in this fiscal update is a Canadian mortgage charter. This is falling under the affordability kind of umbrella in which homeowners with an insured mortgage up for renewal won't have to requalify for the stress test. They're also proposing billions of dollars. I think it's 15 billions of dollars in loans for new rental housing, although that money's not going to come in about two years. What do you make of this whole fiscal update and what the government is trying to achieve? You know, the federal government really can't control the housing markets of municipalities. I know you and I have spoken about this before, especially with the way that housing prices are so crazy in Hamilton right now, right? The federal government's not going to be able to fix that, uh, certainly not with uh, 
15 billion dollars two years from now so it's a good idea i guess uh but the fact is that it's more for show than anything don't forget there's going to be an election between now and when that money would become available so uh, there's a good chance that nothing will come of it because the way the polling numbers look right now they're not going to be in power in a year and that is interesting because, you know, even at the outset, Christopher Freeland said, you know, this is a priority. This is this housing affordability issue is a, a great concern, I think were her words. Yet they're waiting two years to make any big impact. I mean, it's it's ass backwards. Yeah. I, look, the, the government knows that they can't do anything about the housing markets. They know that that's a municipal issue. And in most cases, it's a zoning issue. And even if it's not a zoning issue, it's an incentive issue. It, it's getting home builders to want to build the type of homes that would alleviate some of the housing pressure. So the federal government really is constrained as to what they can do. So I think part of the reason why they're not taking immediate action is because there's really no immediate action that they can take other than threatening provinces uh, and withholding funds from them if they don't do enough to try and encourage municipalities to try and uh, alleviate some of those zoning concerns and those incentive concerns. Uh, but even there, that would require that the provinces then threaten to withhold funds from the municipalities. So it's, just, it's too much. Uh, so uh, it's easier to just make an announcement of $15 billion and say, well, there, we've done our best. Another part of this, and there were some you know, little kind of uh, intriguing ideas that were uh, outlaid in the fiscal update yesterday, including getting rid of seat selection fees for children under the age of 14 on uh, Canadian commercial flights, which I'm not sure how big of an issue this is, but I guess big enough to be included in the fiscal update. This, this one seems kind of strange to me to be included at this stage. Yeah, and it's, it's a weird sort of legislation that I, I would have thought that would have already been in place. Uh, the putting young children away from their parents. I, I was just flying last night. Uh, you know, it would seem almost natural that you would put kids together with their traveling party. So, uh, great. I, I don't know that this is going to save their government, uh, and it's going to be a big campaign issue that somehow the Conservatives would object to. So uh, I guess good on them for at least putting it in place. But uh, I, I don't know what, what impact that's going to have on Canadians that are concerned about grocery prices and housing prices. We didn't see any massive new spending announcements apart from, you know, the billions that are going to go for new rental housing, or at least that's the plan. Has this government kind of painted itself into a corner given where inflation is? And if they if they announce a whole flood of spending, that that might have an impact on how Canadians spend and impact inflation. That's exactly it. And so the government knows full well that if they spend, they will become a source of inflation themselves. So especially when the, the news yesterday that inflation fell to 3.1% uh, and we're right at the cusp of getting into the Bank of Canada's comfort zone, uh, you, you just can't come out and say that we're going to spend huge sums of money and then see that inflation starts going back up again. Uh, inflation has been plaguing Canadians for two years now. And so as we're just about to finally get back to life as normal, uh, the government has to be really careful what they do. So they were merely tinkering at the margin just so that they could say we've done something, but not enough to, to be inflationary themselves. And from the Bank of Canada's standpoint, with inflation now at 3.1%, as you mentioned last month, um, the assumption is that th the central bank will hold the line on interest rates because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to decelerate too quickly. 
Yeah, so they're not going to increase interest rates, at least at their December meeting. So that's the good news. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't envision that we're going to see decreases in interest rates until maybe mid to late 2024. Uh, It's not just that inflation needs to get down below that 3% number. It needs to get down below that number, stay at that number. And we need to see signs that Canadians expect that it's going to stay at that number. Once all of those boxes are ticked, then the Bank of Canada can start decreasing interest rates, but they're going to decrease it at a more modest pace uh, than the way that they increase them. So even when they start decreasing, we're not going to see like big one percentage point drops the way we saw one percentage point increases. It's going to come down a quarter of a percentage point, maybe five or six times over the course of, say, 12 to 18 months. I think you're bang on with that. Moshe, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the day. Anytime. Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University, adding his thoughts on Finance Minister Christopher Freeland's fiscal update. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario's colleges and universities are calling on the provincial government to end the now five-year-long tuition freeze. Uh, Is it going to happen? What impact will it have on post-secondary education and those seeking an education in those facilities? Let's talk about that now with Paul Armstrong, the Chief Operating Officer at Mohawk College, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Paul, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Uh, Thanks very much for the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm going to guess that you're amongst the institutions who are saying it's time for this freeze to end. Uh, We are. And, you know, we're saying it's time for this freeze to end, but really in the context of all of the recommendations within the Blue Ribbon Panel report that has just been received by the the government. And so, you know, we're very pleased that the government engaged the experts they did. We're very pleased with the recommendations. And I would say primarily is, you know, the unfreezing of tuition is sort of one of the levers that, you know, if these recommendations are accepted and implemented, we'll continue to ensure that uh, government are good partners with the colleges and universities to ensure we remain financially sustainable and main contributors to the workforce into the future. Well, let's just put pause, press pause on the on the the tuition freeze aspect right now. Just talk about some of these other recommendations that could make a big impact on post secondary education. What are some of the things that Mohawk College and you would like to see implemented? So sort of probably the most um, important enabler would be an increase in the operating grant funding. So operating grant funding that comes to support uh, students in in domestic programs has been also frozen since 2019. And actually, when you look at what inflation has done over that period, has actually been reduced. And so that would be uh, one of the main recommendations. We're hoping that will be implemented immediately um, and then considered aligned to inflation over time. The tuition uh, increase you'll see is we feel it's a modest increase from the learner perspective, um, but from a college perspective does give us another way to ensure that we have the resources to ensure programs are staffed appropriately, we have the right faculty, and um, we have the ability in the facilities to be state-of-the-art. There are some specific recommendations around uh, programs that are in high demand. There's some really important recommendations around Uh, OSAP uh, changes that will continue to meet what the guiding principles of the Blue Ribbon Panel was, and that was to ensure we're financially sustainable into the future, but in a way that enhances the student experience and keeps education affordable. So a broad range of actions which would have a big impact on 
the quality of education and our ability to continue to do what we've done for a long time into the future. And let's circle back to the tuition freeze now. If this remains in effect, because we know that the government has said, hey, listen, colleges and listen, uh, universities, you have to find some efficiencies. If tuition remains frozen, what is the impact on Mohawk College? Well, the impact for us is that it'll just continue to be another uh, financial challenge that we need to mitigate in our annual budget planning. So, you know, we, you know, have some really aggressive plans at Mohawk College around new programs and new schools uh, related to the commitment we've made to uh, climate action and sustainability. We know that uh, deferred maintenance continues to be a challenge. We know that with the types of programs that we have, we need to continue to upgrade labs and create more experiential learning opportunities. And so, you know, we'll have to think about how do we, you know, sort of scale those back potentially, not advance them as quickly as we'd want to, um, you know, moving forward. So um, th- those are some of the big challenges that, you know, that we see on, a, on an annual basis. And I think it's also important to understand that, you know, that the tuition is not just frozen for five years. It actually was reduced by 10% and then frozen for five years. And so that has been a pretty significant, you know, cumulative effect on our ability to uh, have the resources we need over that period of time. Paul, if tuition is eventually increased, and I'm sure it's it's not that far down the road, given the current economic climate, is there a danger, and I know you probably have to walk a fine line in some cases, is there a danger of making school unaffordable or unreachable for some? So I would never want to, in, you know, um, sort of indicate that a tuition increase is not um, potentially a barrier. We know that any increase uh, to tuition or to fees or to the cost of education is something that presents a challenge. But, you know, at this moment in time, I think it's important to understand that the tuition levels uh, on average at an Ontario college, so speaking now of the college system, are about 2700 per year. This is the second lowest across the country. Uh, and if the government were, for example, to implement the 5% increase that has been uh, requested through the Blue Ribbon Panel, that would equate to about $135 per year. So again, that $135 could be uh, a big challenge for individuals who are already struggling with inflationary pressures around all the other components of their life. But as I said, the holistic nature of the recommendations and Hopefully, you know, the OSAP changes will continue to create opportunities to reduce barriers. At Mohawk College, we have made it one of our strategic aspirations to ensure that we have resources to support those students most in need. So I would hope that, you know, it would not be a barrier for um, the vast majority of individuals seeking education and that as we get on this path to restoring, hopefully some reasonable and modest uh, tuition and operating grant um, you know, levels that the quality of the education they're going to get is going to continue to be uh, improved and the experience they get will be worth it. Paul, I thank you very much for your time this morning. Best of luck on this uh, crusade to get this uh, freeze unfrozen, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Great. Thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, speak with you today, Rick. Paul Armstrong is the Chief Operating Officer at Mohawk College, and I know that the government has said, hey, listen, uh, post-secondary institutions find some efficiencies all of them have said, uh, yeah, we've we've cut. Uh, there's nothing else to, unless you want to start cutting programs. I mean, if you want to have the best education system, 
there's a price tag that comes with that. And that is the message from colleges and universities. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, more and more people we're hearing, at least anecdotally, are starting to turn away and giving up on food delivery services due to rising costs. It's the focus of our poll question of the day, whether it's skip the dishes or Uber Eats or DoorDash or just ordering from your favorite restaurant. It sounds like fewer and fewer people are actually doing this. Dr. Ian Lee is an associate professor in the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University and joins us on GMH. Dr. Lee, good morning. Uh, Good morning, Rick. We know that Canadians are cutting their spending, whether it's at the grocery store or it's at restaurants. Is this the case for these delivery services as well? I think so. Um, The... I mean, the inter- let's go big picture for the moment. Mm-hmm. The interest rate increases are working. Uh, I know there's some people that still deny that, but what interest rate increases do is that it forces people to spend more on their mortgage payment and any, any debt instrument that is tied to the central bank rate. And so in so doing, it reduces their discretionary income. In other words, they have less money in their pocket to spend at the end of the day. And so what con- uh, consumers do and this has been studied, believe me, endlessly. I saw it as a bank uh, mortgage manager back in the early 80s when interest rates hit 20, 2021. People start to economize. They're rational. So you say, okay, what can I cut out of my budget? Well, you got to keep heating your house. you got to keep paying your mortgage payment or your rent payment because you don't want to end up in a snowbank in January. So that's the last thing you default on. And the stats show that very clearly, by the way. Contrary to all these people who say that the delinquency rate is going to go through the roof, they just haven't studied this. I'm not saying people don't default. They default on their credit card payments. They default on their Canadian Tire card, on their Hudson's Bay card, on their Home Depot card, on their Rona card, on their Visa card. But they won't default on mortgage that, uh, or rent, or they default last of all. They also do things like, okay, we cut back on going to the restaurants. Uh, we cut back on trips. We cut back, uh, we postpone uh, buying a new car. And one area that's very easy to cut back on is delivery because if you say, well, gee, I still want to have that treat once a week or two weeks and have a restaurant meal, the service charges of delivery drive it up quite a bit. So people say, you know what? Yeah, it's miserable outside. It might be rainy, sleety, freezing rain, but I'll, I'll go to the, I'll drive down there to the restaurant myself and pick it up and save myself an extra 10 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever. Is it is it almost a catch-22 or a big hamster wheel? Because fewer and fewer people are visiting restaurants. We heard from Restaurants Canada not That's too right. long ago that you know half of, right. half of the restaurants in this country are losing money. And in the yes. same sense, the restaurants are thinking, well, we got to make up this difference, so we'll charge extra for delivery. Yeah, um, they are, because it may seem micro-rational, you know, micro meaning to the individual firm, but it, what it does is it, in the tent macro sense, it causes millions of us to change our behavior and say, you know what? I don't think I'm going to order that meal. I've, I'll be full, full disclosure, Rick, full disclosure. <laughs> We've cut way back on going to restaurants. And, and last Friday night, had the granddaughters over, so we ordered a pizza. And I said, no, I'm going to go pick it up. And I saved myself, I don't know, 10 or 15 bucks. Mm-hmm. Had, you know, two large pizzas and the delivery charge and the tip and everything. I said, look, I'll go out and pick it up. And I did. And I saved myself a little bit of money. Not that I'm, you know, desperate or anything, but, you know, we are more conscious. We become much more conscious when rates go up and the economy is declining, which it most certainly is. GDP is way down. Unemployment rates going up. We all process this information. And so we start to change our behavior, especially on discretionary items. 
I don't want to suggest that data does not support the idea that large numbers of Canadians are going to go into default on their mortgage or rent. That's the last thing you default on. You default on everything else first, unsecured car loans, finance company loans, utility bills. You don't default on your mortgage or your rent unless you think it's cool to live in a snowbank in January. Yeah. And I don't, I, the mortgage language in Canada right now is 0.15. That means 99.85% of Canadians are up to date on their mortgage. I'm sure the delinquency on credit cards is going through the roof. I'm sure it's going up on, on utility bills. I'm sure it's going up on finance company loans, but it's not going up on mortgages or rent. We got 90 seconds in the scenario that you presented with the, you know, the, the, the pizza party. Is it almost, are we at that point where it's almost a matter of principle that, listen, my time to go pick this up is worth more than the delivery charge fee or the service fee or whatever the case is? Uh, yeah, we're making those trade-offs now. Before, we didn't think about it. We said, hey, I, I'm, I'm busy, I'm having fun, friends are over, we'll order it in, all right? But when, when it gets to right now, people are actually saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to say if I just take 15 minutes of my time, I think the, the app, you know, will tell you when you can pick it up, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't have to go there an hour in advance. You know, you look at the app time, it'll say expected the time of uh, available, you know, to be picked up. And uh, so people are making those trade-offs now, yes. And they're saying, you know, my time, 15 minutes to save, you know, 15 bucks. Hey, I'll do it. I'll go pick it up myself. Yeah, no big deal. We're seeing more and more people doing just that. Dr. Lee, always appreciate your time. Thanks for waking up with us on Good Morning Hamilton. Thanks very much. Dr. Ian Lee, an associate professor in the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. In if you've ever used a food delivery service app like Skip the Dishes or Uber Eats or DoorDash, there's not only is, you know, the price of the item, but you're also paying a service fee a delivery fee, of course, taxes involved. There's, you know, the, the tip option as well. And Uber, just one of the companies, saying that these fees cover a bunch of things, operational services, delivery driver wages, insurance, marketing, payment processing, and other support, which I get it, but I think we're either almost at the point or right at the point. And I mentioned this earlier, that our time is worth something. So if it is... If you're doing that mental math and you're thinking, no, I'm going to pick this thing up rather than have it delivered or even order it at all. And hey, let's just make a meal at home because it's cheaper to do so. You might already actually be there. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're in celebration mode later on tonight because the CPKC holiday train is rolling into the hammer this evening. It is the 25th annual event that raises money and food and awareness on the important work that food banks in various communities, including here in Hamilton with Hamilton Food Share, do not only on an annual basis, but a day-to-day basis. And here to talk about what is happening tonight is Felicia Kostecki, the Community Relations Coordinator with Hamilton Food Share, and she joins us now. Felicia, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm feeling great. How are you? And thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the show today to talk about the holiday train, because this is one of the highlights of the Christmas season. And I know it comes in November, but it's, you know, it's rolling down the track, and it's finally back here in Hamilton. Uh, I'm excited. I'm sure you are, too. Oh, Rick, how right you are. It is the ultimate event to kick off the holiday season. We're all so excited at Hamilton Food Share. We're rounding up our our volunteer elves to be there and, and be around through the crowds, collecting food and cash donations, 
handing out candy canes. It's just a very exciting time for us at Hamilton Food Share. Who is performing tonight? Because I know along with this whole event, there is uh, a mini concert that takes place. Oh, there, there is. And tonight's will be really exciting. We've got the Australian County Music Duo T-Force and, of course, the great Canadian singer-songwriter um, Kaisa. Wow, that sounds pretty exciting. Is there a fundraising goal tonight or a food collection goal tonight? Well, what we really like to do for food collection is let's beat our record from last year. Last year, we collected over 7,000 pounds of food to distribute to our neighbors in need. So let's beat it this year. We want 10,000 pounds of food. That's a great goal to have. What, um, What do you hope people bring in terms of food? What is needed the most right now? Well, we're looking at really non-perishable items, um, things like um, canned goods, soups, tunas, um, beans, rice, pastas, um, staples in, in that sort of area would be just amazing. And that is the common things, you know, the, the, the beans, the tuna, the, the rice, the pasta, all those things that you kind of mentioned. That is, that's needed all year round. It's not just obviously at this time of the year. Oh, absolutely, Rick. Because you have to remember, over the past year, the use of food banks and the need for food banks in our city has increased by 40%. That's a huge jump. So there are a lot of neighbors in need out there that we've got to be here to help. And the whole community comes together in order to do that. And that's what's so amazing about this event. Absolutely. What time does it all start tonight? Okay, so the train will arrive at 745, and, and it's a spectacular 14 cars, totally decked out in lights. It's bright. It's, you, actually, when the train comes in, you just take a minute and take it all in because it's so beautiful. And then the concert will, once the train pulls in and comes to a full stop, the boxcar opens and the stage is shown. So the concert starts at about 8 p.m., and this is just south of Gage Park along Lawrence Road, and it is a great atmosphere with the escarpment as a backdrop, with Santa Claus is going to be there. This sounds like it's going to be a fun time. And absolutely, and through the crowds, look for your, your favorite um, Christmas characters will be there. As I said, we'll have our volunteer elves collecting cash donations, collecting your food donations. Our trucks will be there with big bins to collect it all and get ready for the big way of how much food was collected. Um, There will be um, some of our Hamilton team mascots will be there. And, and it's, and if you, if you're feeling a little bit cold and chilly, Tim Hortons will also be on site with hot beverages. Nice. So it's really a whole atmosphere of fun and festivity. It's a win-win-win, and we know the need is great. I mean, the need is great each and every year, but with the cost of food, the cost of living, uh, th- th- this year is really important to get out and support a program and an event like this. Oh, absolutely. Just in the, in the month of December, we expect to be supporting over 12,000 households. And it's so important for that support because think about it. I mean, the holidays are a time of celebration and you never want a barrier to your celebration be about food insecurity. So we and the, and the community are making sure that that doesn't happen for a lot of households. Well, and that's a great thing. Let's hope the, the weather holds tonight. I know it's going to be a little cloudy. It's going to be a little wet through the day, but it's expected to clear somewhat later on tonight. So that is uh, some good news for you. 
Absolutely. Fingers are crossed. But, you know, we are there, rain or shine. The music will be playing as people are waiting for the train. And it's just a great, festive way to kick off the holiday season in Hamilton. should mention, too, it's also free to attend. You do not have to buy a ticket to get there, although we'd love to see your financial and non-perishable food donations going to Hamilton Food Share. Felicia, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for the time this morning. Okay, and you have a great day. Thank you so much, Rick. You too. More details online at hamiltonfoodshare.org. That's Felicia Kostecki, the Community Relations Coordinator with Hamilton Food Share. So, again, the holiday train back in Hamilton later on tonight. This thing's been running since 1999, and since then it's raised more than $22.5 million and has collected 5 million pounds of food for community food banks across the continent, which is awesome. So the train gets there uh, just south of Gage Park, Along Lawrence Road, it's 7.45 tonight. The big concert will erupt at about 8. Again, Tim Hortons is going to be down there to give everyone a little bit of a warm-up in terms of uh, coffee or hot chocolate. And uh, it's going to be a fun time, as it is always. Looking forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.